0: This year, we decided, just as our preaching team met in the summer, and we felt that God wanted us to preach through 1 Corinthians, um, the w- w- book of 1 Corinthians is just so big, and it has so much stuff to, to preach through, and to cover, that we're like, man, we're going to need pretty much every Sunday that we can to do that, so um, instead, you're going to get to hear me uh, preach through Ephesians chapter, sorry, not Ephesians, 1 Corinthians <laughs> <laughs> chapter 5 today. Um, Okay, now before I do that, though, I want to remind you a little bit of what it is that we've been going through. So uh, I've been doing this series called Messy Church, and we're looking at 1 Corinthians. We call it a book, but as I uh, will continue to remind you, it's actually a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he planted. Um, He started this church about 2,000 years ago, and uh, then he moved on and went to uh, plant other churches. And... uh, He was, of course, interested in the welfare of how they were doing, so he'd write back and uh, he'd have some sort of communication, they would ask him questions, and he would tell them how to uh, deal with different problems that were going on in their church, and we saw that uh, one of the big things that was a problem in Corinth was that the church was very divided, and uh, the past few weeks we've seen how they were divided over leaders. They would take two different guys, uh, three different guys, whoever, and they would... uh, basically divide over them, even though they were all preaching the same gospel, and they were all looking to glorify God, uh, they still ended up taking their focus off of the one that was supposed to be glorified, and they were focusing it on the people that were supposed to be doing the glorifying. And so with that, Paul is trying to help them see, guys, this is silly, this is stupid. Stop dividing yourselves. All glory belongs to God. Uh, you need to be unified in purpose together under him, and you need to appreciate the different people that, that are preaching there. Like They're all working towards the same effort. And that's going to be a theme that he continues throughout 1 Corinthians is really just trying to push unity uh, on this church because it was something that they weren't grasping very much. Um, now, uh, as we get into uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I-, I would say Paul has been pretty uh, gentle uh, so far with how he's been uh, helping the church figure out how to deal with some of their issues. Um, today, his-, his tone is going to change Um, just a a little bit. Um, He's going to start to get a little bit rougher. Um, And I I think that this switch is, uh, there's a good reason for it. Um, He's really going to be addressing people that are not interested in growing in holiness. And so we're going to talk about how we can deal with that together as a church. But uh, first I want us to pray and then ask the Lord to guide us through this text. Lord, we love you, and we thank you so much for who you are. Um, We thank you that you love us, that you guide us, that you protect us. And Father, we just give you this time. We ask that you would remove any distractions from us, and that you would help us just to focus our hearts and minds completely on you. Uh, Be with us here. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. Okay, so if you have your Bible with you, you can open up to 1 Corinthians. And we're going to be starting in chapter 4, but then we'll spend most of our time in chapter 5. But I actually want to start with the last few verses of chapter 4. If we pick it up in verse 18, Paul says this. Some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find not only how these arrogant people are talking... But what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline? Or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? So as I said... Uh, we'll stop here for a second. Paul uh, had been pretty gentle with what he'd been instructing them before. It's was like, hey, guys, this is silly. You need to stop dividing yourselves over leaders. And, and now he's, he's going to move to this spot where it's like, hey, I, I've heard of some other stuff that's going on that if you guys don't get your act together, I'm going to have to come. And, and there's basically, I'm going to have to whoop some butt um, is, is what he <laughs> is going to be getting into here. He's saying, like, you don't want me to have to come that way, though. Uh, like, I'd much rather come, like, in, in love and in a gentle spirit. I hope that you guys can resolve uh, this issue without me having to, to be difficult. And so, basically what we see here is that Paul is zealous for the glory of God, and he's willing to defend it aggressively if he has to. And uh, really, you see the same characteristic in Jesus, right? Like, Jesus is a tender shepherd in a lot of ways we see him in the Gospels, but there's sometimes that his zeal for the holiness of God just rises up in him and I mean seriously there's a, a story where Jesus made a whip and started whipping people um, turning over tables uh, from people that were uh, basically using the temple and, and turning it into a marketplace and they were trying to extort people there rather than focus their glory uh, focus the worship on God um, we also see even like uh, the, the Lord doesn't doesn't want to execute his, his wrath. I mean, Ezekiel, I think it's thirty three eleven, says, I take no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. But we do see, and this is very clear, like all throughout the scriptures, that God will execute his wrath eventually. Um, there, there comes a point sometimes where his patience has run out. And so Paul is warning the Corinthian church, hey, man, I want you guys to repent. I want you guys to get this together. I'm going to tell you the right things to do. But if not, I'm going to have to come and it's going to be not as joyful and not as happy of a visit. So let's see what it is that he's been hearing about. Like I said, there's a correspondence. He's been getting a report of what's been going on in the Corinthian church. And obviously there's something that he's heard that's going on there that is extremely disturbing that would kind of get him to this, this tone change to where it's like this is a really serious issue that you have to deal with. So let's see what was going on. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast. So that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. But I am writing you, writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Right. So that's an intense passage of scripture. It's, I would venture to say that a lot of you have probably never heard it preached on before. And uh, it, it's not a passage I think that pastors are generally clamoring over to preach. Um, because it's a difficult reality. It's a difficult reality that we're called to as the church. And it's a responsibility that falls on pastors. But really a responsibility that falls on the church in general. And that God has called us to be a church that values righteousness and purity. And that fights for that. That's a very, very, very significant thing. As you read this passage, uh, you can almost hear the level of disbelief that Paul has that the Corinthians are allowing this to go on in their midst. Now, Corinth was a very sexually immoral town, okay? A lot of these people that got saved in Corinth, undoubtedly, were coming from extremely sexually immoral backgrounds. The Temple of Aphrodite was in Corinth, which was a temple that had 2,000 priestesses, which were essentially prostitutes because you would worship Aphrodite by having sex with them. The city was so sexually immoral that to Corinthianize literally became a verb in Greek meaning to have promiscuous sex, Okay, that's the city that this church is in, all right? Now, with that, Paul says that these Christian Corinthians are allowing something to happen in the church that even pagans don't tolerate. So he's saying, yeah, you guys that live in Corinth, that has the Temple of Aphrodite, and has all this stuff, and literally your your city uh, has a a word that that has come to, to mean sexual promiscuity, yeah, you guys are allowing something to happen in your church that even they wouldn't tolerate. I mean, that, that's a, a serious indictment uh, that he's bringing against them. Now, and, and not only were they allowing this to happen, but Paul says, and you are proud. Now, I don't know exactly what Paul means when he says they're proud there. I don't know if he means that they're proud of the specific thing that that is happening, or if they're just generally a proud church, thinking that they're really, really awesome and they're doing a great job. And maybe they're not proud of that specific thing, but they're just proud in general. I would probably lean more towards that interpretation, because I'd have a hard time seeing how they'd be proud of this. But regardless, either way, Paul is helping them see, man, you guys have, should not be boasting. <laughs> like, what, what you are allowing to, to go on, despite all this other stuff that, that God is doing in your church, and there's cool things that are happening there, and he praised them earlier, and he called them saints, he reminded them that they were God's holy ones, but he's helping them see, man, you guys should not be proud. This is not okay for you to be boasting. And Paul goes so far as to say, not only should you not be proud, but really, you should have already known what you should do. You need to kick this guy out of your church. And that, like seems like a really, really difficult thing for us to hear, right? Because like, as Christians, we're so aware of God's grace and his patience and all this with us and we're aware of our own sins, so all of a sudden we read a passage like this and we see this guy's in sin, and Paul says, you just need to expel this dude. Don't, don't even eat with people like this. Uh, cast the, the wicked person out from among you. That's kind of confusing for us a little bit, right? As, as people that have been conditioned to believe in grace and love and forgiveness. And so I want to back up here for a second and help process what's, what's going on. So as I said, this is part of a conversation between Paul and the Corinthians. So I, I don't know what information Paul already knew about what was going on. I would assume that the Corinthians actually, to some degree, had already addressed this. Uh, maybe not as forcefully as they should have, but I, I would assume that they had already told this guy, hey, you can't be doing this. Maybe there were several people that had told him you can't be doing this. Yet he continues on doing it because Paul jumped straight to Jesus' last step that he gave us in uh, resolving a sin issue in the church. So I want to take a little bit of time to look at what Jesus taught us about how we should resolve sin amongst, uh, when we see that in the lives of other people that are believers. So these are words of Jesus, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So Jesus gives us kind of this four-step process here of dealing with sin that you see in the lives of other believers. And the first step, and this is a really vital step, and I would say if we were even just obedient to this step, we'd take care of 90% of the problems that we have, uh, which is go and talk to the person yourself if you see something. Most of us fail at step one. I'm being dead serious, right? Like, because I think that our natural reaction oftentimes when we see someone else in sin is not to actually go and confront them, but is to gossip about it, or to, or, or to uh, you know talk behind that person's back in some way, or maybe just judge them internally, but not actually do anything about it because you're afraid to go and speak. Any of the, those are probably our more common reactions. But but Jesus says it plain and simple here: Hey, if you see your brother in sin, you need to go talk to him about it, just the two of you. So that means two things. First off. Don't be involving other people that don't need to be involved in it, okay? Uh, that, that, that comes later. But what, the last thing that we need to do when we see sin in the life of a brother or sister is go start gossiping about it and start spreading it around other people. And at the same time, so, so we, we don't want to do that, and we also have no right to be passive about it. If we see sin in the life of a brother or sister, we have the responsibility to go take care of it ourselves, Okay? That's not your life group leader's job. That's not my job. That's not, that that is your job as a Christian. God is the one that's that's put you in the spot to be able to see what's going on. He's given you the knowledge to know that it's wrong, and he's given you the first responsibility to go and take care of this, and you need to take responsibility in that. Now, if you go and do that, as I said, I really believe that about 90% of our problems die right there. We all have blind spots, Um, if this is another brother or sister in Christ, they presumably care about living in righteousness and want to grow, there's a good chance that maybe they just weren't aware of it, or maybe they were deceiving themselves enough to where they were allowed to continue it. And as soon as somebody speaks truth into the situation and shows them what's going on, the Lord will work through that. The Holy Spirit will convict them and bring them to repentance. That's ideally what we want to see happen. And if you follow Jesus for long enough, this will happen to you. It better happen to you if you're part of a community that cares about itself. This, I've had people that have done this to me. They say, Grant, I see this sin in your life. I say, oh, dude, thanks for pointing that out. You're right. I need to, I need to fix that. And if, and if I don't, then we need to go to step two. Okay? And so step two, take one or two other people along to help. Notice that you only proceed to this step if step one didn't work. If they agree with you on step one, and they, they like, yeah, you're right, I need to repent, great. Praise the Lord that the process is finished. Um, step two is necessary if it's like, no, nah, I don't see what you're saying, I don't believe you, whatever, that kind of thing. No, I, th- I think it's fine. Well, in that case, you need to go get a few other people involved. Not the whole church, that we don't go there yet. It, takes, it says take one or two other people along with you. So this is where you need to go find other trusted Christians, other people that know the word of God, that follow the word of God, that are going to be able to have a good perspective to offer on the situation, right? Because even as it says that every matter may be established by two or three witnesses, basically I think the value of bringing these people along is like, are we, am I seeing this right? Because there's a chance that you're seeing sin in someone's life that's actually not sin. Maybe you're the one that's wrong. And so as you bring these other people along, they're going to be able to help bring a more unbiased opinion to the situation and help decide, yeah, is, is this is there really sin that's going on here? And if they do, if all two, three of you are saying, yeah, this is sin, you need to repent of this, then by God's grace, we hope and pray that the Spirit will convict the person there and, and that the, the, there will be repentance, and, and that will happen. Sometimes that's what you need. Sometimes there's one other person who tells you something, you won't listen. Finally, two, three people that you respect are all telling you the same thing. You realize the error of your way. But if that doesn't work, then sometimes you have to proceed to step number three. And this is where you have to have the whole church confront them, okay? Now, the, the mechanics of exactly how to do this, I'm not sure. We, we haven't had anything get to this spot, thankfully. Um, but I think that you basically need to bring at least a very large portion of the believers together. Us as a church have to come together and realize, like, yeah, this is sin. This is something that we're not going to allow and tolerate in our midst. And if even amongst all of us saying this is not something that we're okay with, you need to repent of this, if they still say, no, I want to continue to walk in this, then at that point, Jesus says this, is the last step is step four, He says, treat them as a pagan or tax collector. And now, if you even think about that, uh, what's a a pagan or a tax collector? I mean, a a pagan is a person who doesn't believe. Tax collectors were people that were despised in that society and kind of looked down on. No one wanted to be around them. Um, Yet, Jesus still loved those people, right? It wasn't like, okay, well, you're just condemned to hell and there's absolutely no opportunity for you. But the way that we view this person has to start to become different. I think that we have to honestly start viewing them more like, hey, I'm I'm actually going to start witnessing to you, like you're a non-believer, because your heart is so hard against this sin that you're allowing to continue your life. Frankly, I don't know anymore, Um, so I I can't treat you as though you're you're a part of the actual community and family of believers, and and this is a uh, a difficult thing to do. Um, Thankfully, as I said, it's it's not something that I've ever personally had to practice. I've uh, dealt with sin in, in this manner before, usually by the time you get past step two and the person doesn't want to listen, uh, in my experience, they've just removed themselves. Um, but, but there may be times where this, these measures have to be taken. Now, I would say that this kind of discipline is, is loving and it's necessary, and I'll get to that in a second. Um, and, and I think that this is a last resort thing, though. And that's why I would say I would assume that the Corinthians had already done some of these steps, or probably all these steps, because by the time Paul got this letter, he's like, you guys need to just kick this person out. He's gone straight to step four. Uh, but I don't think he's skipping over those without having some prior knowledge of the other stuff happening. So you might be thinking, why, why kick somebody out, though? Like, wouldn't it be better to just, like, keep them around, let them eventually, like, learn the right way to live, you know, be loving, be patient, that, that kind of a thing. And if you're thinking that, like, I think that your heart's probably in a good spot. I, I think that you love that person and, and you do desire what is good for them. The thing is, I, I believe that Jesus also desires what's good for people. I believe that Paul also desires what's good for people. And both of us are telling the same thing. And so if this is the case, then we have to look at this and understand that discipline, this is not because you've just given up on the person and you don't like them anymore. This is, this is essentially a new strategy that you're employing to say, we've tried everything else we can to help you. This is the last thing that we can do. And so what I would say is that discipline is actually intended to bring repentance. If you even look at what Paul said in verse 5, he said, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So the, the point isn't, well, I'm just sick of this guy and I don't want to deal with him anymore, get rid of him. There's actually a reason for this. The reason is, this guy won't listen to any sort of loving rebuke. And so finally, I've got to try something else. It's essentially what God did with Israel, right? God sent Israel prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. He was so patient with them. And they stayed in the land for so long and yet they were still so sinful that finally, there was no other option, but all right, you're going into captivity. Uh, Assyria comes and conquers northern Israel. Babylon comes, conquers Judah. At that, they, they just they did there was no other strategy at that point they, they weren 't listening, so essentially the, the strategy of tough love was what had to be applied and that's what that's what goes on with discipline here. I know this seems like a harsh measure, but the reality is that that Paul is saying, man, you need to let this person experience the full weight and destructiveness of their sin because as long as you still allow them to be in your church they're still going to basically gain peripheral blessings from being close to the Lord. They're still, they're still getting blessings from being around this community. There's still uh, some sort of sense of love and belonging. There's still a, a, a lot of things, I think, that can insulate them from feeling the weight and destructiveness of their sin. And Paul's like, man, I want you to remove that so they can see really what it is that they're doing to their lives. And and, and there's no doubt about it, sin kills. It destroys. It will have a negative effect on your life, I promise you, it's just a matter of time until you figure it out, if you don't see it right away. And so Paul is saying, I'm going to remo- remove this guy and let them figure it out, because apparently there's no other way they're going to. And the hope, of course, is that they would be brought to repentance, right? The destruction of the flesh, that means that idea of feeling all of the weight and all the pain and all of the brokenness that sin brings into a person's life. Why? So that the spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Essentially, that that brokenness and that pain from sin would bring them to repentance, that they would finally see the error of their way. Now, the text also goes on to give another very, very important reason for church discipline. And we see this in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? All right, Paul's giving us this analogy here of baking bread. I don't know how many of you have baked bread before, but... uh, All you need is a little bit of yeast, and you put this into your bread dough, and the entire loaf rises, right? You have this little thing that gets in there and affects everything. And Paul is helping the Corinthians to see sin works the same way in the church. If you let this little sin survive in the church, this is going to spread throughout, and it's going to affect the whole thing, just the same way that yeast affects the, the whole batch of dough. Sin is way more communal and infectious than we think. I think that's one of the downsides of us living in such an individualistic culture. I think that the upside is we understand that, from a salvation standpoint, we have a personal responsibility to put faith in Jesus Christ. You're not going to be saved by the faith of your grandparents or the fact that your uncle's a pastor or anything like that. It's do you know Jesus? That's good. You'll be on a salvation basis. You'll be judged individually by your faith in Christ. But I think the thing that we miss out a lot of the time on our communal culture and in our individualistic culture is we forget to realize like, how much we're tied to each other and how much the thing that one person does affects another. And you will see this all throughout the scriptures. If you, uh, just to give you a couple examples, in Joshua chapter 7, uh, we learn about the sin of Achan, which is basically uh, God is, is bringing Israel into the promised land and uh, they, they take Jericho and God tells them, you've got to destroy everything in Jericho. But there's this guy named Achan that's like, well, yeah, but there's some nice stuff there. Like I'm going to take a little bit of it and keep it for myself. And he does this in secret, no one else knows about it. And then sure enough, Israel, uh, they go out to have their next battle, and the next battle is this town called Ai, it's this tiny little town, they, the scouts go out and look at it, we don't even need the whole army, they say, send, send just a, a small portion of the army, we'll go take care of it. And they end up getting routed, and, and they go before the Lord, like, what's going on, God, why, <laughs> you said that you were going to give us this land, you literally just made the walls of Jericho fall down by us walking around them and blowing a trumpet, and now, we can't beat this tiny little town of Ai. And the Lord reveals to them, it's, it's because of sin that you've allowed to be in your camp. This, this guy, Achan, stuck, took stuff that he wasn't supposed to from Jericho. And until you clean that out, you're not going to win any more battles. And so they go and they find this sin and they weed it out of the church. He was, the man was actually stoned to death. Um, but what we see there that what the, the sin that happened there affected everybody else. You look at the same idea uh, with King David that David Himes eloquently referenced earlier. Um, the guy in the Bible. Uh, he, he, uh, King David was a great king, good king. Um, but he made a, serious, a couple of serious mistakes in his life. And one of them was that uh, he took a census when he wasn't supposed to. And uh, even Joab, his army commander, even warned him, David, this isn't a good idea. It doesn't matter. He follows through with it. And so then the Lord rebukes him, and the Lord sends a plague upon Israel. It's only the sin of David. It wasn't Israel that made a mistake. But David's sin ended up affecting the rest of his country. Israel was one nation that was connected together in a covenant with God. And there was no way that you could isolate just the sin of one person to not affect the lives of others and I'm not saying that the sin of one other person in this church is going to make you unsaved. But I am saying that the sin of another person in this church is going to affect the, the depth and the effectiveness that we have as a church. And the way that we interact with Lord, it does impact each other. You know, Paul even talks about this, uh, if you, as we get further in First Corinthians, when we get to chapter 12, he uses this analogy of uh, the church being the body, right? We're all these different parts, but uh, you know, like, yeah, your body is a bunch of different parts, but it's all one body. And when one part of it is, is hurt, like, your, your, whole, your whole attitude's bad, right? Like, you broke your arm, yeah, so your arm's affected, but it affects so many other things that you do, or you broke your leg, it affects so many other things that you were able to do. When you have one problem, one part of your body that suffers, it affects the other parts of your body. And so Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, he says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. So purity in our church is important, and it's something that we must fight for. For the good of that person, for our own good, for the good of all the other people that are faithfully following the Lord, we have to take purity in our church seriously. Now there's a couple very important distinctions that we have to make to be able to apply this passage correctly. And the first one that we need to realize is the difference between struggling with sin versus living in unrepentant sin. Okay? This, this passage is not referring to somebody who is, is caught up in uh, trying to overcome an old lifestyle of sin that they've had, where they're fighting against it, they're, they've got measures in their life, they're, they hate it, they're praying against it, they have accountability, all this kind of stuff. Uh, it's not talking about that kind of person. This is talking about a guy that's, that's sleeping with his father's wife and he's proud of it. Okay? Uh, he's, he's in complete, unrepentant sin. Or to even go back to what Jesus was talking about, where it's like, hey, if your brother listens, great, you've won him. We see you can stop in this this process whenever the person's repentant. What we're talking about here with this idea of expelling a person from the church is continual, hard-hearted, unrepentant sin. So if you're, you know, take pornography, for example. I know a lot of, of guys have been ex- this is just a part of their life. It's an addiction that they formed from a young age. You come to Christ and you realize, this is something that's got to get out of my life. And, and as, you, as you're fighting against this and as you have accountability in your life, you're taking measures to beat this. This is not saying, well, we need to expel you just because you haven't fixed it yet. That's not what this is saying. Um, but if it's like, hey, I don't care. This is just a part of my life. It's something I've become accustomed to. I want to continue in it. And you have person after person that's come with you and help you say, dude, you can't have this in your life then at that point, like, if you continue to not listen, then yeah, this is talking about that, that you need to be expelled so that you can feel the full weight of your sin, or this, you, you're trying to beat a drinking problem, you know, you've, you, you've partied all the time in high school, maybe you got saved later in college, whatever, you're coming from this, this culture of, of just, this is what you've done in your life, is getting drunk all the time, and and, and you find yourself slipping back into that sometimes, but you hate it, you confess, you repent, you're trying to fight against this. That's different from the person that says, well, yeah, this is just like, yeah, I know I'm not supposed to, but it's just kind of a part of my life, that's what I'm going to do. And as you continue to not listen, like, there's a difference between those two. You look at what Matthew said in uh so what Jesus said in Matthew 18, I just want to point this out to you again. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. Awesome. Great. That's what we hope for in this process. If you even read just a couple of verses later in that chapter, it says, "'Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, "'Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me?' "'Up to seven times.' "'Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times.'" And you also have to understand, in Hebrew thought, like, seven was a number of completeness. So Jesus isn't saying, like, mark off the tally 77 times uh, when you forgive me. So basically saying, as, as long as this guy is coming and, and they're actually repentant, then, then you need to keep forgiving them. And that's an incredible amount of patience that the Lord has with us. Like, that's awesome. And so when you say, this is confusing because I thought Christians were all about grace and forgiveness and all that, yeah, we are. We have a God that tells us to forgive 77 times, meaning infinity times. But that happens as a condition of repentance. Now, the other important distinction that we have to make is people that are in the church versus people that are outside of the church. Okay? So we're, we can only discipline people that are inside the church. right? Paul said this in verses 9-13. through 13, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. So church discipline is something that, can, that is intended to and can only be practiced on people that are in the church, right? Like, like, this isn't saying, oh, like, keep away from, you know, your friend that doesn't know Jesus that's sleeping around and getting drunk all the time. No, like, we'd have to literally leave the, the world for, for that. Like, we're witnessing those people. Those people aren't claiming to be Christians. They're not held to the same standards, but when you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, we have a responsibility to hold you to that standard. And so that, that's really where that comes in. Of course our non-Christian friends are living proudly in their sin. They haven't come to see it as sin yet. They haven't come to see it as being something that, that's destructive. And this is why uh, when I have my friends that are non-believers that are doing this stuff, I don't, I don't even, that's not even my focus is to try and get them to stop doing that stuff. My focus is to bring them to Jesus And as they come to see Jesus, they'll come to see the weight of their sin. And and then, you know, he'll start weeding out that stuff along with me and the help of others that are pouring in their life. And they'll come to see that those things need to change. But that's very different from the person that says, yeah, I know Jesus. I know I'm supposed to be living. And yet they choose to ignore it. You know, you look at Jesus even and how he deals with people. And uh, you'll notice that he's way more tender with people like tax collectors, prostitutes. That kind of class of people. You see, he's always like seems to be really gentle with them. And then who are the people that Jesus is just laying the smack down on all the time? It's the Pharisees. The people that should have known better. Like, they, they had the scriptures. They proclaimed to be worshipers of the one true God. They, all, all that kind of stuff. But what is it? Their, their lives didn't reflect that. So Jesus was harsh with them. He's like, you guys already know what you should be doing, and you're not doing it. Whereas like these people over here that were living in complete sin and ignorance, he was gentle with, and he was trying to help uh, show them the goodness of God and bring them into that. The Pharisees had already learned about the goodness of God, yet they were choosing to neglect it. And so this is the same difference with us, where it's like, man, the, the way that we deal with sin in the lives of our friends that are not believers is different from the way that we deal with sin in the lives of our friends that are believers. Okay. Now... As I was saying, this is one of the harsher passages of Scripture um, related to how to deal with sin in the church. Uh, it, it's not necessarily a, a fun passage. It's certainly we see that, that church purity and stuff is, is no joke. Um, but I'm thankful for this passage. I'm thankful that God cares about the purity of his church. And, and I hope that us as a church, that we would come to have that same heart that the Lord does. That that we would take that seriously. So where does that start with? Well, well, first that starts with us in our own lives. You know, how how seriously are we uh, taking purity in our lives? And I don't mean that just in the sense of sex. Obviously, that's what's going on here. But Paul lists all sorts of other stuff. Drunkards, idolaters, swindlers, all this kind of stuff. Whatever it may be, how how seriously are you actually fighting sin in your own life? Um, So I hope that first we'd be people that take that seriously in our own lives. And second, I I hope that we take it seriously in the lives of others. We're called to. This is not a judgmental thing, right? Uh, you see all this stuff about like not judging, you know, like don't look at the speck in your brother's eye when you have a log in your own life. Uh, yes, that, that's all true. When you're judging somebody, uh, that, you're not doing that with the intention of, of bringing them to repentance and restoration and, and, and helping them live a good and fulfilling abundant life in Christ, okay? Judging somebody is like, look how bad that person sucks. I'm better than them because they have this X, Y, and Z problem, it's not a matter of trying to help them. When you're bringing a, a legitimate issue to somebody in, the, in the, what the truth of the scripture says, that's not judgment, that's love. So we need to be serious and, and this is a responsibility for all of us. Okay, When it gets to those really difficult levels of actually expelling the person, then that's a responsibility that, that lays on me and, and Perkle and other leaders of the church. Um, but, but the responsibility, as I said, probably 90% of it lays with you guys of, of when you see a brother or sister that is in sin, that you take the initiative to go and confront that right now. Don't let that continue to linger. It'll hurt them and it'll hurt you. Now, if things do get bad and, you know, we have to progress all the way to step four that Jesus gave us, we have to put the person out of the church, and essentially we're just starting to witness to them like a non-believer at this point. Um, as we're doing that, remember, this whole process is for their good. It's for the good of the church, and it's for their good too. And so we're praying for them. And, and we're asking the Lord that he'll bring them to repentance. We're asking the Lord to show them because we know that our God transforms and that he takes people out of sin. He does it all the time. He brings people from death to life. And so I want to skip to chapter six and just end on a couple of my, probably some of my favorite verses in the Bible I think are just really, really powerful. If you skip over to chapter six and read verses nine through 11, Paul says this, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Man, I I, I love that. That's what some of you were. I told you that he's writing this letter to a church that you, you've learned about Corinth. You know what the city was like. Of course, they related to that stuff a ton. But, but if you hear here for my first sermon, he opens up and he, he talks about, man, to the saints, the holy ones. It's not what they're identified anymore. If, if you're in Jesus Christ, you're, you're cleansed of all that. Yeah, wrongdoers don't inherit the kingdom of God. Praise the Lord that our wrongs have been swept away by the blood of Jesus if we're in him. And so that's our prayer, that even as we have to do difficult things sometimes, like aggressively pursuing purity in the church, expelling somebody that that is continually hard-hearted and unrepentant, um, that this is always what we're longing for. Because this is the heart of our God. He's a God that pursues the sexually immoral, and the idolaters, and adulterers, and on down the list. Those are the ones that he bought with his blood. And so we, we serve an, a beautiful and awesome God because he knows that you could look at this list and, and whatever, this isn't even an exhaustive list. I mean, he, he listed a lot of sins and I'm sure that you can find one that you fall into on there. But even if you can, the, you, you get the idea, man. If you're a wrongdoer, you, you don't inherit the kingdom of God. Not outside the grace of God, you don't. And the reason that we can is because Jesus Christ came and he, he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross for our sins. And every bit of wrongdoing, all that stuff, all that shame and everything that, that you, that's been a part of, of your life, the shame and, and the, the guilt and, and the, just the garbage that you're trying to weed out of your life right now even, the Lord died on the cross for those things that we could be forgiven. And so let us be people that live in that. Let us be people that appreciate that in the way that we live. And that's where purity comes. But let us also be people that long for that and preach that message. Uh, let's pray and the, the band can come back up and we're going to enter into a time of musical worship. <clears throat> Lord, we uh, thank you that you are a good and perfect and holy God. And uh, we, just, we thank you that you teach us what is true and good and real. Um, Lord, we thank you that there's no sin in you at all. There is no darkness in you at all. God, we thank you that as we're saved in Christ, there's, there's no sin in us anymore that holds us back from you, Lord. And while we still struggle with the flesh, we, we thank you that you're patient with us and that you continue to forgive us. God, we pray that, that we would be a church uh, that lives in repentance, God, that we would uh, repent when we do wrong, Lord, that we would um, know your love for us constantly, that, that we would... Uh, be willing to to love one another enough to go and to confront sin when we see it in the lives of a brother or sister, God. I pray that uh, you'd give us courage to do that because, Lord, we confess we're scared too. (coughs) But, Lord, we thank you that you confront sin in us. We thank you that your spirit shows that in us. And you do it because you love us. You do it because you want us to grow. And, Lord, as we pursue purity as a church, I pray that you would help us to call one another out and to help one another because we want each other to grow. Lord, give us the courage and strength to pursue you in the way that you have chosen to be pursued. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your son's awesome name.